Let's take our Bibles this evening to Psalm 16. Psalm chapter 16. Now, Psalm 16 is what is called a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that uh, points to, prophesies of the Messiah, Jesus. And on the day of Pentecost, A.D. 29, Peter stood up at the temple, filled with the Holy Spirit, and preached Jesus as raised from the dead. His proof for this was twofold. First of all, he went to the Old Testament, and he showed how the Old Testament prophesied the resurrection of the Messiah. Secondly, he appealed to his, himself as an eyewitness and to all the other apostles as eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the central text that Peter used that day was the text we're looking at this evening. Peter appealed to Acts, or to, in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 32, Peter appeals to Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And after reading or quoting from the passage, he goes on to say this in Acts chapter 2, verses 31 and 32, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Later in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, verses 35 to 37, the Apostle Paul himself will appeal to Psalm 16 as proof for Jesus' resurrection. Now look at the inscription. The inscription reads, A Mikhtam of David. A Mikhtam of David. This is the first use of the term Mikhtam in the Psalms uh, here in Psalm 16. It will be used again in the inscriptions of Psalm 56 through 60. The meaning of the word is difficult to uh, uh, be conclusive on because it can be defined as something engraved in gold, something that covers, a secret treasure, or a poem containing pithy saints. Well, certainly, the Psalms are poetic, so certainly we could say that this Psalm does contain some pithy sayings. In fact, we're going to look at nine particular sayings this evening in this Psalm uh, that we as Christians need to take heed to and examine ourselves in light of. But I also like the term something engraved in gold or something that's golden. And I look at Psalm 16 as the golden psalm because it is the chunk of gold hidden in the field of the Old Testament. And it's golden because it speaks so plainly of Christ and His resurrection. Now I'm going to divide the psalm this evening into three parts. Uh, first four verses under the, we're, going to, we're going to put under the heading of preservation. Uh, those four verses are about David petitioning God for preservation. Then we're going to look at verses 5 through 8, and we're going to look at those uh, from the heading of position. David's enunciating his position before the Lord. And then verses 9 through 11, uh, we'll look at uh, the heading of perpetuity, because certainly uh, verses 9 through 11... Uh, speaks about the perpetuity of Christ, but also the perpetuity of believers. And in each of these headings, or under each of these headings, preservation, position, and perpetuity, each heading has three particular statements or sayings that we're going to consider. So first of all, under the preservation heading, verses 1 through 4, let's read the text. It says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord, I have no good beside you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. 
I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Again, David's praying to God for preservation. Now, the first statement, the first pithy saying, if you will, is right there in verse 1. Preserve me. We see David's craving here. Preserve me. Now, it doesn't suggest that David was in any trouble or danger, as in Psalm 9 or 13. It simply means, God, I need your care and guidance. That's what he's praying for here. God, give me your care and guidance. Why? Because I want to honor you and enjoy all the good things that only you can give me. Again, we know that God alone is good. We know that apart from him, we have nothing that is good. Is that your craving? Do you crave for God's constant care and guidance? Listen, without God's care and guidance, we would be lost. His second pithy statement under the preservation label, I have no good beside you. I have no good beside you. Here's David's confession. He confesses that the Lord is his highest good and his greatest treasure. Indeed, the half-brother of Christ, James, said in chapter 1 that the Father is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And in truly, the highest uh, privilege that we have in life, the greatest gift that we have in life, is salvation, which is a good gift that comes down from above. We're given the gift of repentance and faith. And again, if we know the Father through Jesus Christ, that's a good thing. But beyond that, look around you and ask yourself what you consider to be good in this world, good in your life. And friends, if it doesn't come from God, it isn't good. Think about that. You know, so many of the things that we enjoy, so many things that we think are good, if they're not from God, they're not good. Now certainly God is going to be with us and give us the blessings of good things as His Word says. In fact, it says that His goodness follows us all the days of our lives. In other words, till we reach heaven's shores, His goodness is going to be upon us. And if Christ is your Savior, by the way, the word Savior is refuge. If He's your refuge and Lord, you can rest and be confident in knowing that God's goodness will be upon you even in the midst of trials. Is that your confession? Do you confess before the Lord that anything good in your life, all the goodness that you know, comes from Him? And notice His third pithy statement. The saints are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Let's talk about David's companions, the saints. Again, he says what? He says, they are, the saints are the majestic ones in whom is all my delights. Folks, we don't live the Christian life alone. We're part of a spiritual family. We need one another. And this is depicted in previous Psalms, but you know, one of the things as you go through the Psalms that comes out is that there's a believing remnant, the saints, I believe we saw this last time in Psalm chapter 5, there's the believing remnant, the saints, and then there's the unbelieving worshiper of idols. The saints are those who trust God, 
believe God, and obey His covenant. They are the saints because He has set them apart for His purpose. Saints take seriously God's command, Be holy, for I am holy. You know, Israel was given that command in Leviticus 19. Israel was set aside to be a kingdom of priests and to be a holy nation. Today, that same statement, that same command applies to you and me, believer, because in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter said, Be holy, as it is written in Scripture, Be holy, for I am holy, as God is holy. And just like Israel is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Peter goes on to say, Believer, you as part of the church are a kingdom of priests. As the church, we are a holy nation. So believer, you are a majestic one. You are a saint of God. Now we need to ask, do we view each other as saints? Do we treat each other as saints? Do we see one another as majestic ones? And let's take it a step further. Do we take delight in one another? Now, let's be honest. Yes, because we're sinful, there are going to be times we irk one another, upset one another, disappoint one another, annoy one another. We can go on and on. We won't. But the, at the end of the day, if we are the children of God, if we are saints, we are majestic ones. And we should be delighting in one another. You see, in spite of all of our faults and failures, as children of God, we are His elite. We are His noble ones on earth. And we are to demonstrate our love for one another. You know, Jesus said to the disciples, The world will know me and know you as you show what? Love for one another as we love one another, as we use our God-given abilities and resources to minister to the family of God, that's how we show that we delight in one another. And like David, we cannot compromise with those who disobey the Lord and worship idols. Notice what he said there. He said, the sorrows of those who have Bartered for another God will be multiplied. I will not pour out their drink offerings. Now, drink offering was wine that was offered uh, with a blood sacrifice. I'm not going to pour out their wine uh, of blood. And he calls it blood because he's referring to the fact that they have bloody hands. And the idea of bloody hands is when you're making a sacrifice, you're slaughtering that lamb, your hands are covered in that blood, you're picking up that uh, cup uh, of wine, and you're pouring it out on the uh, altar. He says, I'm not taking part in their offerings, nor am I going to take their names upon my lips. In other words, I'm not even going to name their gods. I'm not going to confess their gods. Because the source of all that is good is the one true God, Yahweh. Multiplied gods, all the pagan gods, and you say, well, I don't have any gods before me. Listen, is money your God? Is success your God? Is fame your God? Listen, those things only bring multiplied sorrows. David says, I don't even want to speak their names. Now, folks, that doesn't mean we're to be isolationist. We're here in the world to be salt and light. But we need to be careful that we don't become defiled by their sin. And the only way we're not going to be defiled by their sin is for God to preserve us. 
verses 5 through 8, David enunciates his position. He says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in, a pleasant, in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled thee. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, we noted three pithy statements in verses 1 through 4. Preserve me. I have no good besides you. And the majestic ones I delight in. I delight in the saints. Now, the next three pithy statements here in verses 5 through 8, as David enunciates his position, first of all, he says, The Lord is my portion. Here's David's communion. The Lord is my portion. And he uses language that harkens back to Joshua chapter 13. After Israel conquered the promised land, all of the tribes except Levi received a special inheritance of the land. Now, the Levites' inheritance was the Lord. They were going to serve him in the tabernacle or temple later. But David takes that language and he says here, The Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. Listen, he's king, he possesses great wealth. But if he doesn't have the Lord, he's in poverty. doesn't matter. All the money in the world doesn't mean a thing if you don't possess Jesus. You're in poverty, he says. You can enjoy all the gifts of this world, but if you ignore the giver of those gifts, all you're doing is enjoying wickedness. If Jesus is the Lord of our lives, then the possessions that you and I have and the circumstances that we are in, whether we see them as good or bad, represent the inheritance that he has given us. Again, he sometimes brings what appears to us as bad, evil circumstances. Not evil in the sense of sinful, but evil in the sense of catastrophic. And yet, even in the midst of those things, he is good. And he's pouring his goodness out upon us. David also says, notice his next statement here. First he said, the Lord is my portion. Then the next statement, the lines have, befall, have fallen to me in pleasant places. Here's David's contentment. Now the lot, a lot was something that was usually uh, several stones placed into a container or a box of something. The stones would have names or statements, whatever on them, they'd be shaken. And the stone that would roll out would be where the lot was cast. And this was a method used throughout the Old Testament, given to them by God to determine His will. And so when it came time to divide up the land, lots were cast. It marked off the inheritance of the tribe. And then each individual lot was marked with a landmark that was not to be moved. And David rejoices that God has caused the, line of, the lines of his inheritance to fall in pleasant places. He says, I have a delightful inheritance. And I want to be a good steward of what God has given me. Folks, God has given us salvation. The lot of salvation has fallen upon us. He has placed a landmark, His Holy Spirit, upon us that cannot be moved. And because we have the landmark of the Holy Spirit, we are sealed until the day of redemption. We are guaranteed our inheritance. But let's be good stewards of the inheritance that we have. Let's not keep it to ourselves, but let's declare it to one another and to others who need to hear it. 
that Christ came into this world to seek and to save the lost. And then his third statement that he makes in verses 5 through 8, he says, I will not be shaken. Here's David's confidence. I will not be shaken. His personal fellowship with the Lord was his greatest joy. And this came at night. David went to night school, if you will. He says that he was instructed and counseled by God in the night. And the word night there is plural, meaning night after night he was learning from God. God was instructing him. And that word instruct carries with it the idea of discipline or chastening. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that nighttime, he can be, the, the, the idea of the plural form of night can be during dark times. And he's saying here, during the dark times, God was disciplining, chastening me. He says, I learned many lessons as I saw God's loving hand upon me. Because why? He's my advocate. He's my defender. He's my guide. He's my guard. I've got nothing to fear. I will not be moved. Friend, you and I do not need to fear the future when the one who holds the future in his hand is our Lord. Finally, verses 9 through 11. The perpetuity. Therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. The first statement David makes in this section of perpetuity, he says, My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. His heart, that's the source of his emotions. His glory, glory refers to his soul and spirit. He says, it's glad and it rejoices. This is David's comfort. You know, listen, in this life only we have hope in Christ. We have, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, Paul said. But because of his resurrection, because Jesus conquered death through faith, we have not a wishful hope, we have a living hope. And so when David said, my flesh also will dwell securely, not only is his heart glad, not only are his soul and spirit rejoicing, but his flesh is also going to dwell securely. Now, he's talking about the Messiah. But he knows because of what the Messiah is going to do, it's going to apply to him. Notice David's conviction. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. When Jesus arose from the dead on the third day, Jesus had a real and substantial body, a glorified body, still could ingest food, but able to appear and disappear, able to pass through locked doors. And David says, I can face death with a glad heart, a soul and spirit that are rejoicing, flesh that is resting in the hope of knowing that beyond the grave there is life, there is a glorified body because my Savior died but resurrected and received a glorified body. The final statement shows David's confidence once again. You will make known to me the path of life. The path of life ends in greater life when we enter heaven. There we will be in His presence. We'll experience fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Folks, we're not going to be some uh, white-robed uh, angels with halos and harps resting on little white clouds. No, we're going to be in glorified bodies just like Jesus. We're going to worship Him. We're going to serve Him. And the pleasures of heaven will go far beyond any pleasure you've ever known here on earth. 
and as we enjoy the Lord forever, as we serve Him forever, will not be restricted or encumbered by time, physical weakness, or the consequences of sin. The, mag- the glories of heaven are magnificent, so much so that John could barely describe it in Revelation 21 and 22. Psalm 16 is a very personal hymn of joy that focuses on the goodness of the Lord. The personal pronoun my is used over a dozen times here. My trust, my goodness, my cup, etc. David's joy is expressed in words like delight and pleasant and pleasure and glad. He finds delight only in the Lord and confesses that everything good in his life comes only from the Lord. Friend, I want to ask you a question. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Have you accepted your inheritance and are you making the most of it for His glory? Do you anticipate being with Christ in glory? Is He the joy of your life today? And if He isn't, then I ask you, are you prepared to enjoy Him for all eternity? Father, I thank You for Psalm 16. And thank You for these statements of David that he enunciates in this psalm that demonstrate his desire and delight in you. Father, this psalm is such a valuable psalm to us. It is a golden psalm. It is precious. And Father, we get to hold on to it. And like David, we don't need to fear or worry. We don't need to doubt. We don't need to to think, what now, what next? Because, Father, Lord, we know you've got it. We know that for your people, you have blessings of goodness to pour out. Lord, even in times of calamity, your goodness is ever-present. But, Father, if someone's listening this evening, and in those final questions, acknowledge the fact that Your Son is not the Lord of their life. If they've acknowledged, Father, the fact that they don't know Christ as their joy, then, Father, I pray that you'd give them no peace. But rather, Father, that your Spirit would work in their heart to confront them of their sin. That, Father, the Spirit would convict them of truth and of righteousness. Father, they would realize if Jesus is not the Lord of their life, they're on their way to hell and the lake of fire. And so, Father, we pray that you might bring them to repentance and faith. That, Father, they'd see what your Son has done. He died, he shed his blood, buried, and risen again. And that, Father, they might receive the engraved word that's able to save their souls. We pray in your Son's matchless and precious name. Amen.